0: Alrighty. Um, You're here for a good good morning because we're starting a brand new book of the Bible. We are in Jeremiah. So uh, you can open if you want, but you know me. I like to put the text up on the screen so I can run you at my pace and read you along as quickly as I can. I've got a lot to share with you this morning. Jeremiah is one of the biggest books in the Bible. And no, we're not going to go verse by verse. I would like to do that someday, someplace, but not here, not now. I'm trying to get you through the whole Bible, and uh, I'd like to do that sometime within the next 20 years, if at all possible. So going book by book, or verse by verse, verse, of Jeremiah would take till Jesus came back. So I've got a chart up here, a piece of the chart I've been passing out. This is the chart that over 100 people have requested online. If you're new to us and you want the full chart, just send us an email and we'll send you a PDF of it. It's simply a timeline of how all the kings and the prophets fit together chronologically as well as the foreign kings like the Babylonians and Assyrians and stuff. Jeremiah is right here. You can see he had a very long ministry as compared to, say, Joel or Habakkuk or Zephaniah or Nahum. He ministered somewhere around 50 years. Him and Daniel were just amazing in the length of time that they ministered. He came on the scene, Jeremiah during the days of Josiah. King Josiah was one of the good kings. You know, we were having a spat of bad kings. And Josiah was a Reformation king. He had the temple refurnished, rebuilt, uh, not rebuilt, what's the word? Remodeled. It had fallen to ruin. He had it cleaned up, all the idols taken out, rededicated to God. But while he was doing this, they found a book, a scroll. And he read it and it was actually the Torah, the law of God. And when he saw the covenant that God had with the children of Israel and how horribly Judah had broken it, he tore his clothes and he grieved and he sent for a prophet and said, it says we're doomed because we've been breaking all these laws. Is that true? And the prophet said, oh, yeah, it's true. You are doomed. But because you've humbled yourself before God, it won't happen during your days. And then Josiah sent out all these missionaries to try to get everybody to come to God. It was a beautiful thing and a beautiful time. Jeremiah then would have been one of those missionaries that he sent out to bring reformation to the kingdom. Now I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. Because Jeremiah is so huge and I want to give you a sense of what the book's about, I'm going to read to you a summary of the book of Jeremiah that I didn't write. I got it out of a great commentary. They did better than I could have, so why reinvent the wheel? I got this from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. I've shortened it But other than that, let me just read to you about Jeremiah's life and book from this commentary. While still very young, he received his prophetical call. Among the first charges to him was one that he should go and proclaim God's message to Jerusalem. While still very young. There's a lot of debate over exactly how old he was because the Bible doesn't tell us. It just says he was young. Well, a three-year-old's young. 10-year-old is young. But in that culture, so is a 15 or 20-year-old. Even a 25-year-old could have been considered young based on his station in life, his marital status. To me, when I think of a young man, scripturally speaking, I think of somebody before marriage. So how old was Jeremiah? Don't know. If you have a King James in front of you, it'll say, he'll say, I'm just but a child. Others say youth, others say young man. I think young man is the way to go don't know upper teens, lower 20s. He was too young to have any kind of respect or any kind of authority in that patriarchal culture. So whatever his age was, he knew he was too young to be doing what God wanted him to do in that culture. So one of the first thing God does is is send him to Jerusalem. So think of somebody from our youth group, a 15-year-old, going to Washington, D.C. to confront Barack Obama and tell him he's got a message from God for him. He would not make it past the entryway to the White House. Barack wouldn't even know he was there, unless, of course, God really sent him. Then he'd get in. But can you imagine Barack giving respect to a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old? He'd like laugh him to scorn. Go shave, kid. So Jeremiah was definitely out of his element. He was uncomfortable. He didn't want to do what God was having him do. He knew he wouldn't get any respect. But see, Jeremiah doesn't know as much as God knows. He was the man for the job. Why? I don't know. Maybe he was the only godly man left. I know there was a couple more, so that couldn't have been it. All I know is God says, don't tell me how to do my job. I'm sending you. You're going to do what I tell you to do. He also took an official tour to announce to the cities of Judah the contents of the book of the law found in the temple. So he sent off as an ambassador, a missionary, an evangelist to tell everybody in Israel and Judah God's word. And I say Israel. Israel was destroyed, but there's still people who lived up there. So they just sent people far and wide to tell people, turn back to God. On his return to his home city, Anatoth, his countrymen, offended at his reproofs, conspired against his life. To escape their persecutions, as well as those of his own family, he left Anatoth and resided at Jerusalem. So he went out preaching the gospel, and when he got home, they were going to kill him. Because they didn't like what he had to say. Because his message wasn't like the message we hear, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. His message was, You've turned your back on God, and if you don't repent, he's going to send the Babylonians in to destroy you. They didn't like to hear that. Nobody likes to be told they're sinning and evil and wrong. But that's what he said. So they were going to kill him. So he fled home and went and lived in Jerusalem. Now, Josiah was the king. But after he died, there were a whole bunch of kings. Because when the kings didn't walk with God, they died quickly. They were assassinated. They were replaced. So the next king comes along, Jeremiah still prophet, his name's Jehoiakim. On Jehoiakim's accession to the throne, the priests, the prophets, and the people then brought Jeremiah before the authorities, urging that he should be put to death for his denunciations against the evil city, or his denunciations of evil against the city. In other words, he was telling Jerusalem just how it was. You guys are bad! You've turned your backs on God, you're murdering innocent people, you're killing children, you're worshiping idols, and you will be destroyed unless you repent. And their way of dealing with this? killing. Well, the princes, however, especially a guy named Ahikam, interposed on his behalf. And he wasn't executed, but he was put under arrest. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, He was commanded to write the predictions given orally through him. Remember, he's under arrest. He can't go to the temple and preach anymore. He's under arrest. So now he's going to write it down, give it to a guy named Baruch, his associate, and Baruch's going to go preach for him. This is around 600 BC. So he writes this stuff down. He tells Baruch to go to read them in public. The princes thereupon advised Baruch and Jeremiah to hide themselves from the king's displeasure. Meanwhile, they read the roll to the king, who was so enraged that he cut it with a knife and threw it into the fire. And at the same time, giving orders for the apprehension of the prophet Baruch. So Jeremiah can't preach anymore. He wrote it down. Or Baruch wrote it for him, said, now you go read it. Baruch reads it. Copy goes to the king. The king reads it. He's enraged. He cuts it up with a knife, throws it into the fire. Some respect for God's word, huh? Some respect for God's prophet. I mean, if they didn't think these guys were for real, why did they even care what they had to say? You know, they should have just laughed them off. Thing is, they knew. But they had the sin within them. They just didn't care. They didn't want to listen. So it enraged him. Who talked to me that way? Well, they escaped Jehoiakim's violence because he gave orders to apprehend them. And this king, Jehoiakim, had already killed another prophet named Uriah. So Baruch wrote the words again, the ones that was burned up, added some additional prophecies in another scroll. In the three-month reign of Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, he prophesied the carrying away of the king and the queen mother. In this reign, he was imprisoned again. So the, one king dies, new king comes, new king wants to have him killed, that king dies, new king comes, this king wants to have him arrested. It can't be easy being a prophet of God. These guys had it hard. In his reign, he was imprisoned for a short time. But at the next king, Zedekiah's accession, he was set free. For this king sent to him to inquire of the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar had come against Jerusalem. Jeremiah kept saying, the king of Babylon's coming. The king of Babylon's coming. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. Repent, repent, repent. They didn't listen. Now Nebuchadnezzar comes, and now they want to hear what Jeremiah has to say. Well, they still had time. Because Nebuchadnezzar came in three stages. He came the first time and didn't destroy the city. He said, pay me taxes, submit to my authority, and I'll let you live. And you know what Jeremiah told these people? He said, pay his taxes, submit to his authority, and God will let you live. They had every reason to do what God told them to do every reason. It wasn't just because they wanted to obey, but there's this huge army making them obey, and they still refuse to obey. Stupid. So, takes him out of prison to consult with him. He inquires of the Lord. The Chaldeans drew off on hearing of the approach of Pharaoh's army. So now Egypt's getting involved. They're coming up to help. But Jeremiah told the king, don't trust the Egyptians. They're not going to be around long. They will not help. But of course, they don't listen to Jeremiah. They decide to rebel against Babylon and put their money in with the Egyptians. But Jeremiah warned the king that the Egyptians would forsake him, and the Chaldeans return and burn up the city this time. The princes, irritated at this, imprisoned him on the allegation of his deserting to the Chaldeans. You're a spy! You're not a patriot, you work for the Babylonians. You know, from a secular frame of reference, you can understand the response. Imagine us being at war with Japan and not trusting the Japanese people in our country, putting them into camps. Now we abhor, now, 60 years later, what they did then. But you can also understand why they did it. I'm not saying it was wise or unwise. I'm saying, but I get why they did it. Well, this guy's speaking for the Babylonians. These people weren't. This guy is. And so they arrested him. The princes irritated at this, uh, imprisoned him. He would have been left to perish in the dungeon, but for the intercession of a man named Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian. So King Zedekiah, though he consulted Jeremiah in secret, yet was induced by his princes to leave Jeremiah in prison until Jerusalem was taken. Sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar came back, attacked the city, destroyed the temple. All that, and Jeremiah was let free. Nebuchadnezzar, either him or his chief guy in Nebuchadnezzar's authority, actually met Jeremiah and said, you're free. I'm releasing you from prison. You can come to Babylon, we'll take good care of you. You'll be a fine citizen there, or you can stay here. It's up to you. You're Jeremiah. You started as a youth ministering to God, and in your own city, they wanted to kill you. So you moved to Jerusalem. They imprisoned you, threatened to kill you, imprisoned you, threatened to kill you, imprisoned you, and left you there to rot. Now an enemy comes in, who you warned the people was coming, and they decided not to listen, could have kept it from happening. And he says, you can move out of this nasty country that I've just destroyed with no hope and a bunch of bad people to the United States of America. Because, really, Babylon was the world power of the day. They were wealthy. They were prosperous. That was the place you wanted to be. Or you can stay here in this devastated, rotten city where everybody wants to kill you. choice is yours. Guess what Jeremiah chose to do? Stay in Jerusalem. Wow, what a patriot. What a man of God. Maybe he thought, maybe I can help the remnant. Maybe I can help rebuild. Maybe I can comfort those who are hurting. What a good man. I'd have moved to Babylon. So, Nebuchadnezzar directed his captain to give him his freedom so that he might either go to Babylon or stay with the remnant of his people as he chose. As a true patriot, he stayed with Gedaliah. Gedaliah was the one Nebuchadnezzar appointed now to rule over Jerusalem. And, of course, the survivors in Jerusalem executed Gedaliah. They rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and executed Gedaliah. Well, they knew now Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and kill them all, so they fled. And they grabbed Jeremiah and Brooke and fled to Egypt. Jeremiah said, don't go to Egypt. Don't make me go with you to Egypt. God says, don't go to Egypt. We will be destroyed in Egypt. That's a bad idea. And of course, they didn't listen, and they took him to Egypt. Poor Jeremiah. At a boundary city on the branch of the Nile, he prophesied the overthrow of Egypt. Tradition says he died in Egypt stoned. Now, this last part of the commentary really grabs my attention. Listen to what it says. The Jews so venerated him that they believed he would rise from the dead and be the forerunner of the Messiah. It's not just in Jewish history, it's in world history. We treat people like garbage. Then they die, and then we speak highly of them, like they were so wonderful. They were off by a few years. This guy was wonderful, but they didn't treat him wonderful. But now that he's dead, now, oh, he was a great prophet. He was a great prophet. Everything he said came to true. We should have listened to him. In Matthew chapter 16, they inquire, who do men, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah. Remember, they so venerated him that he would do, say that before Messiah comes, Jeremiah would come back. And that's why some of the people said he was Jeremiah. All right, there's your introduction. Thanks to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Now we will get into the book. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Listen. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, I can't speak. I'm a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth for you shall go to whom I send you and whatever I command you you shall speak do not be afraid of their faces for I am with you to deliver you says the lord then the lord put forth his hand and touched his mouth and the lord said to me behold i have put my words in your mouth see i have this day set over you the nations and o- set you over the nations and you over the kingdoms to root out and pull down to destroy to throw down to build and to plant It's funny, he said, don't be afraid of them, I will deliver you. What God means by deliver is a lot different than what we think by deliver. Jeremiah was never executed by all these kings who threatened to execute him. But he was threatened and he was imprisoned. But he was delivered. (laughs) Delivered from being murdered. Delivered from being stoned. But not delivered from all hassles of life. We often think that if we just have enough faith and walk with God in obedience, life will be good. I got news for you. Excuse my French, life sucks. Now, I'm I'm sure you're saying, Steve, that's a very unspiritual perspective to have. Oh, is it? You mean you don't have a loved one who's died? Or another one who's suffering from cancer? You haven't picked up the newspaper? You afraid to go to the bank? There's crazy guys robbing banks all over town? Afraid to go to the movie theater to see the premiere of a movie because somebody might shoot you? You're afraid to walk through the streets at night? You wake up with a crick in your back? Do you get depressed for no good reason? You know what? We got it as good as we can have it in this country. In this day and age, we live in the best country the world has ever seen, and I'm thankful for it, very thankful for it. But this ain't nothing compared to what God has planned for us. There is suffering and sorrow this side of heaven, and there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, all these teachers who write their books and go on the television and say, if you just have enough faith and send them $50, your life will be good and you'll be rich. Let me tell you what a true prophet of God said. Any man who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jeremiah had the life of a godly man. It wasn't a fun life, but it was a good life. Well, that was just a little aside because it jumped into my mind real quick. But the very first introduction in verse 4, it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Now, I used to think that was some divine enlightenment that Jeremiah got. Like one minute, he didn't know what God wanted to say. And the next minute, God spoke into his mind and he knew what God wanted. That's what the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying. But then I gave it some more thought. It says someone or something came to him Speaking. The word of the Lord came to me saying. So somebody or something came to Jeremiah speaking. And this somebody or something is called the word of the Lord. Now, for those of you who've been raised in Christianity and you've read the Bible and you know who Jesus is, this may not surprise you. But if you're raised in a modern Jewish home, you're like scratching your head saying, what is the word of the Lord? It appears to be a being, a person, an entity. But the thing is, how could that be? Because he speaks as a representative of God in one place, and he speaks as God in another place. Well, in the ancient Jewish writings known as the Targums, these are paraphrases of the Bible, the Old Testament, the rabbis, in instances like this, took out the word word and replaced it with their own word called memrah. And they believed that the memrah was a unique divine being. There's a Messianic scholar by the name of Arnold Fruchtenbaum who collected their beliefs on the memra and distilled them. And I've got an, six points for you. What the ancient rabbis thought about the memra which we also call the Word of the Lord. All right? Six things that they believed about the Memrah. Let me read them to you one at a time, talk about them just a little. The Memrah was sometimes distinct from God, and sometimes it was the same as God. It was a paradox that they never tried to explain. So the ancient rabbis saw that in the Bible, the Word of God sometimes was sent as God's ambassador, so he was distinct from God. The word of the Lord came. Not the Lord. The word of the Lord came. And yet in other places, like in verse 7, you see Jeremiah actually talking to the Lord himself when it just a moment ago said the word of the Lord. So the rabbi said, hey, that's kind of confusing, but they never tried to explain it. Just like Jeremiah never tried to explain it or Moses never tried to explain it. They just presented it as it was. Now, when we get to the New Testament, there's some explanation. John starts off his story of Jesus just like this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Ah, so John's trying to help us understand who the Word of God is, who the rabbis called the Memrah, Their idea is the exact same as John 1.1. So number one, the Memrah was sometimes distinct from God, and sometimes it was the same as God. Number two, the Memrah was the agent of creation. So the rabbis would say that God sent forth his his Memrah to do the creating. It's not like he did it in his divine glory all by himself. He had an agent to do it for him. That sound biblically familiar in the New Testament? Did God send forth somebody to do the creation for Him? All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that's been made. The first thing I read to you was John 1.1. 1, 1. That was John 1.3. John 1.1 1, 1 looks like the Memra. John 1.3 looks like the Memra. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. Their third belief about the Memra was that the Memra was the agent of salvation. When God chose to save people, He used His Memrah to do it. He was the Savior. This referred to physical salvation, like the deliverance from Egypt. And this refers to spiritual salvation as well. So does that sound like, do we got a Savior in the New Testament who saves for God? Of course we do. As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to them that believe on His name. We call him the Savior. He is the word of the Lord, but he is also the Savior. They didn't have the New Testament. So I think they did very well at understanding when they didn't have the answer key. It's amazing what you can understand from the Old Testament. So, what did they know about the Memra? Well, sometimes he spoke as if he was God, sometimes he spoke as if he was an agent of God. One. Two. He was the agent of creation. Three, he was the agent of salvation. Four, the Memorah was the means by which God became visible. Jewish thought, which is very, very good, very accurate, humans can't see God. Not just because he's quote-unquote invisible, but if God made himself visible, if he appeared right now, we'd be incinerated. We couldn't handle his presence. We can barely look at the sun, right? Which is gazillion miles away. You know, light travels at like 186,000 miles a second. It takes eight minutes for the light from the sun to get to the earth, that's how far away it is. It's far, and we can't even look at it. What's the sun compared to God? Like nothing. So if we can't stare full face into the sun, imagine taking a ship and getting right up next to the sun and going, hello! You wouldn't get within a million miles of it before you're evaporated. We cannot stand in the presence of God. They know this. They knew this. But God has come up with a way to reveal himself throughout Scripture. The Memrah. You realized Moses was a shepherd, and he saw what looked to be a bush on fire. So he went over to take a look at the burning bush, and it says the angel of God appeared to him in the flames of fire of a bush. Angel is a bad translation. Messenger. Memrah the messenger of God appeared to him in the flames of fire in a bush. And then it says right after that, God spoke to him from the bush. Same as God, distinct from God. Same as God, distinct from God. There was a time when Jacob, just as he was getting ready to go back for his inheritance and to confront Esau, it says in the scripture, he wrestled with a man till the breaking of day. But you know, this ain't no ordinary man. This being, the Memorah, this being said, release me. And Jacob said, I will not release you unless you bless me. Okay, whoever he's wrestling with has the power to bless him. Jacob is a patriarch of Israel. He's like the highest and mightiest on the planet. Who's left to bless him? And then it says this being touched him here and his leg went out of joint. And he still wouldn't let go. By the way, this was about 4,000 years ago. Since that time, when he was touched right here, when Jewish people slaughter an animal, they won't eat that portion of the animal. Because of that f- being touching Jacob there. The concept was just so profound, so holy, so sacred that they wouldn't even. To the 4,000 years of diet because of. Somebody touching Jacob's thigh? Who? What? The Memrah. No mere man, no mere angel, but God himself. And Jacob knew it was God himself. Because he named the place where that thing happened Peniel, which means God's face. And then he said, I have seen God face to face and I live. The Memra was the means by which God became visible. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, Philippians said that Christ, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, a human. So, somehow, God, the Son of God, the Memrah, the Word of God, was able to take his mighty, powerful glory and separate himself from the glow of it so he could be in our presence as a human being. But there were times where he let it peek out. In John, again, they came to arrest him, and they said, Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am, which is, by the way, the name God used for himself at the burning bush. He said, I am. And then it says in John, they all blew over and fell backwards. And then they got up again and asked the question again. Why did they blow over and fly backwards? He just let a little speck of who he was come out. Why? I don't know. To give them a chance to reconsider the stupidity of their action of arresting him? Maybe. To give us insight 2,000 years later as to exactly who Jesus really was? Maybe. I don't know. Number one, distinct from God and sometimes same as God. Number two, the agent of creation. Number three, the agent of salvation. Number four, the means by which God becomes visible. The Memorah is number five, the agent of revelation. He's the one that God uses to speak forth his word. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, the agent of God's revelation, John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is, the first, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And finally, number six, the Memra was the, the means by which God signed his covenants. God sealed his covenant through the agency of the Memra. John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what is the Memrah? It was the ancient rabbi's way of dealing with the word of the Lord. John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word was made flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. The Memrah was Jesus Christ before he was born of a virgin. So God's word, his ambassador, the Memrah, came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying... What did he have to say? Another 45 to 50 chapters. But the first thing that came out of his mouth, listen, this has got to be important, right? It's the first thing he said. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. You have all who are watching the news, heard about this politician who made a real big verbal blunder in talking about the sanctity of life. He wrapped rape into it and said something like justifiable rape, and that ruined his career. And I'm not going to take issue with that. Justifiable rape, really? Whatever. I'm not here to talk about him. But the sanctity of life is always in the news. And politicians are always, you know... Okay, well, I'm against abortion, but not for the, you know, rape or incest or the life of the mother or, you know, whatever. What does God say about the sanctity of life? You see, I've got to show you something I found on Facebook. This, this was so cool. If a single living cell was found on a distant planet, scientists would explain that we have found life elsewhere in the universe. So why is a single living cell found in the womb of a pregnant woman not considered life? Profound profound. So people say, well, we're, up, we're okay with abortion up to 24 weeks because at that time the child becomes viable. You mean viability is your rule for sanctity of life? So my 85-year-old grandpa who can't take care of himself, I should just put a bullet in his head? That man's no longer viable. You see the pains and the sorrows people will go through in the hospital about when to pull the plug? And rightly so, because they value life. If there's just any chance that this person could live, I don't want to pull the plug. Doctor, is there any chance? Okay, let's just wait another day. Let's just wait another day. Let's just wait another day. When does the baby become life? This is not really scientifically objectionable at conception. That's... Secular scientists, it begins multiplying and changing. That's life. Period. So they want to separate the concept of life from humanity. I wouldn't want to do that. Let's say, in their mind, 24 weeks is the cutoff. So a day after that's too late? What about a day before that? What if he's advanced in his class? You really want to take the chance of killing something that might be life? I don't want to take that chance. What if you're wrong? You know, in some states... They can abort a child up to minutes before delivery? Now you tell me, what's the difference between abortion and murder? Five minutes? I mean, really, you've got to think these things through. Don't take the chance because life is precious. God honors life. So most people who try to get their belief system through the Bible come to the conclusion that life begins at conception. But I will differ. Life does not begin in the womb. It begins before that, in the heart and mind of God. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and ordained you a prophet to the nations. So there's no time, in my opinion, that it's morally okay to terminate a pregnancy. That's just nice words for killing a baby. Oh, Steve, but what about rape and incest? Listen, rape and incest are bad things. I'm not going to say they're good. A woman gets raped and then gets pregnant. I can't imagine the emotional turmoil in her soul. I can't. I would not want to be in her shoes. I would pray and weep with her. But let me tell you something. Rape is a bad thing. But life is a good thing. You can't fix a bad thing by doing another bad thing. That won't make anybody feel better. That won't make the woman feel better either. It'll just make her feel worse. Now she feels bad about the one and now guilty about the other. Taking a baby's life is not a solution to that. And we shouldn't be afraid to say so. Same with incest. Incest is wrong. It's against the law. We shouldn't do that. But if life comes from it, life is a good thing. You don't take the life of an innocent, per- an innocent person to fix the mistake that somebody made. What about the life of the mother? Well, okay. In very rare circumstances, and by the way, most abortions are elective. There's, people do them because they want to. Not because of rape, not because of incest, not because of life. It's just they don't want to bear the child and they don't want to pay for it. That's like 90% of the abortions, so it's really a red herring to t- even have this talk. But nevertheless, there are very few circumstances where the baby will definitely kill the mother. And then they're both dead. So if you have to terminate a pregnancy to save a life, I can understand that. Better to have one alive than two dead. But that is such a rare and infrequent thing. It's a red herring. If we really loved and honored life, we would know that. But we're looking for excuses for comfort and we should not do that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, some people have encouraged others to have abortions, and some have had abortions. What does that mean now? It's in the past. You've already done it. God forgives all sins. God wipes away all tears and all guilt in Jesus. If you've done that or encouraged somebody to do that, and you recognize you did wrong, don't die of despair. Just... Come before God and repent. Apologize. God forgives. Don't have to bear the guilt anymore. You know the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament and brought the gospel to millions and millions of Gentiles and if it wasn't for Paul, none of us would be saved? He started his career murdering Christians. That's what his job was. He was a guy who was sent by the high priest and he murdered Christians. Then he realized Jesus was the Messiah. Imagine how he felt. Oh! Yeah, that would have been a bad day. Did he spend the rest of his life in despair and guilt because he murdered Christians? No, he repented. He didn't know. He apologized to God. He didn't know. If I'd known God, I wouldn't have done it. God, if I'd known it was life, I wouldn't have done it. Okay, you know now. I know, and I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. Okay, now I've got a job for you. You're going to serve me. Peter denied Christ three times. Christ came to him after his resurrection and gave him three opportunities to change his mind, and he did, all three. Don't worry about that. God's the God of new beginnings. Just come to him and repent. So God knew Jeremiah before he was born. God is the master of space and time. He's just amazing. God knows you too and knew you before you were born. In fact, the Bible says the very hairs of your head are numbered. All right, moms, how many of you have got children out there? Let me see your hands. Okay, keep your hands up. Dads, hands up. How many of you know how many hairs are on the head of your kids? Keep your hand up. Not a one? Not one of you got a sweet pea with like one hair sticking up? God loves you more than you love your children. He counts the hairs on your head. That's how precious you are to Him. God said, Jeremiah, I knew you. He knows you too. Intimately, He loves you. You know, when the Bible says God loves you so much that He gave His own Son to die for your sins, that's some love, people. That is some love. And God told Jeremiah, I've planned to send you as a prophet to the nations. God had a plan for Jeremiah. God has a plan for each and every one of you, too. It may not be in a book. You may not know it, but he knows it. He wrote it down. He's got a plan for you. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul says that God has predetermined the nations, the boundaries of their habitation, where they should live and for how long, that people just might reach out and find him. God has determined where you live so that you might have the best chance of finding Him and walking with Him. For most of you in here, it's worked. Had you been born in Ethiopia, you might not have come to faith. But because you were born in Texas, you did. In the same way, somebody who was born in Ethiopia might need Ethiopia and that environment to help them find the Lord. God knows what He's about. He's got a plan for each and every one of us. Your trials and your tribulations are not fun, but God can use them for your benefit. In fact, He promises to. If you love him, all things work together for good to those that love God. Well, I don't know your specific plan, but I know our plan in general. God wants everybody to be saved. That I know. I know that Jesus died for each and every one of us. And whosoever's willing will not perish but have everlasting life. So I can tell you part of your plan. God wants you to turn from your sins and follow Jesus to make a commitment to be his follower, lock, stock, and barrel, 100%. Now, like ancient Israel, you can be like Josiah and Jeremiah and follow God's plan. Or you can be like the others that met Nebuchadnezzar and not. God gives us the choice. But I would encourage you to give your heart and life to Jesus and embrace all the goodness that this universe has to offer you. And it will come to you through him. You would do something like this you'd pray a prayer like this. God, I do believe in you. And I do believe in Jesus. I I believe he died for my sins and rose again, and I haven't been following him with all my life. I would like that to change now. I commit myself to you. I am your man. I am your woman. I will follow you. Please forgive me of my sins. Help me serve you well, I pray. Amen. You pray a prayer like that with your heart, you are God's. And if you prayed it this morning, I'd be honored if you'd let me know, just so I can rejoice.
1: So I wanted to share with you a, uh, a verse that, uh, that troubles me a little bit. makes me a little nervous, kind of scary, but that's kind of the point of the verse. So uh, we're going to Matthew 25:31. It says, uh, "When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him." You will separate them from one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. You will set his sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did, you see, when did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared from the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or sick, or naked, in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he he will answer, saying to them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, in, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Very strong words. They should unsettle us at least a little bit. Um, it's, it's a scary thing. The Lord is asking us to take care of people. We're commanded, the, the biggest commandment of all is to love our brothers. This is the action part of that commandment. It's one thing to say, oh, I love you, my brother, but somebody's in need and we're not giving to that need, then we're not actually fulfilling that commandment. I think James understood this balance between faith and works. Uh, James chapter 2, 14 through 18, he says, What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And he's speaking specifically, is faith doing anything? He's not speaking salvation here. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warm and filled... Do you do not give them things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? This also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say to you, Have faith and have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. There's somebody standing on the street corner saying, I feel for you. I'm sorry you're in that situation and moving on. It doesn't help them one bit. Your faith isn't doing anything for them there unless you convert it into works. So this, uh, this next 30 days, I challenge you, Uh, to convert that into works. We've all heard of IOUs. Somebody owes you something. These are you owe mes Take one only if you're willing in the next 30 days to exercise these sorts of things in, in a show of faith in some sort of a situation. I'm going to go ahead and pass these around. Put it up on a situation where you can see it every day, up on a bulletin board, up on your refrigerator. I want you to leave it there until you do one act of kindness that, uh, that Jesus was talking about here and then you can take it down you can put it somewhere else or maybe even if you feel all the blessings coming to you as a result of that and you realize that you're doing the work for the Lord maybe even leave it up as a constant reminder so uh, what can you do? There's, there's so many various different things um, you can, we're, we're specifically keying off of feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, comfort a stranger, provide clothes to someone in need minister to the sick or in prison. These are the specific things Jesus was talking about. So what can you do? Keep a $20 bill in your visor, and next time you see somebody who's in need, who is asking for something, you've got it right there on hand. Next time you pick up a drink at Circle K, a nice cold bottle of water, pick up two. And then as you're looking around, be prepared to roll your window down, find somebody who's thirsty, hand it out to them. Just nothing more than that. Um, there are plenty of uh, organizations we 've got gospel rescue mission has' got plenty of things for you to do uh, mike 's new ministry uh, restore Tucson has certainly got plenty of things to do. You can also uh, help finance those things as well uh, it, it helps and uh, the, the food bank local food bank i 've heard that a uh, dollar twenty five is all it takes for them to give somebody a meal so maybe rather than going rifling through finding ramens and green beans that you 're never going to use, bring by a twenty for them or maybe even Food that some people would, uh, would really appreciate, maybe food that you would use. Um, but that's, uh, that's, that's all there is to it. Uh, try to find one good thing, one of these things, a need that you can meet somewhere. Meet that need.
0: Excellent. Thank Thanks, you, Nick. Thank you, thank, you. thank you so much. All right, guys, New York, New York hands in. All right. On three one, two, three. Jesus! See yes. right you guys in food. <laughs>